Hi, this is Jason Smith letting you know that this will be the last episode of our second season of Digital Jung. And I wanted to take a moment to thank all those people who have reached out to me with comments, with questions, and with encouragement. It means a lot to me to hear from each of you. Thank you. I'll be back in September with a whole new season of episodes. Until then, I hope you enjoy this episode, and as always, thanks for listening, and take good care. Welcome to Digital Yum, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we explore the work of becoming what one is and the fears we often feel when we begin it. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. It often happens that one fears what has to be, what in the deepest sense belongs to one. One fears it, and yet wants it at the same time. One should really press the fear to one's heart and say, this is, after all, precisely what I want. In the practice of the symbolic life, it's essential to always keep in mind the fact of the unconscious. This is an idea that I come back to again and again in this podcast. And I come back to it because it's both an idea of fundamental importance and, at the same time, one that always remains elusive easy to lose track of, easy to forget. And we forget it because, as Jung points out, the unconscious is always unconscious. We really don't know it, he says. We don't know our unconscious personality. And it's truly a challenge to get our minds around this experience because it means nothing less than that we are more than we think we are. More, in fact, than we can think about ourselves. And we have to have a way of conceptualizing and imagining our experience of ourselves as including that which is unfamiliar, unexpected, unknown, and even, at times, unwelcome. 
When Jung speaks of individuation as the urge to become what one is, you can be sure that this does not simply mean living the life you've always imagined, or fulfilling some cherished self-image or ideal to which you may aspire. In many ways, becoming what you are means becoming something of a stranger to yourself. It's not a destination that can be decided ahead of time and arrived at by following a prescribed path. We discover where we're going only when we arrive, and we find the way there only by traveling it. Traveler, there is no path, writes the poet Antonio Machado. Paths are made by walking. The work of the symbolic life is not merely something of academic interest or intellectual curiosity. It requires something of us, demands our participation. At its heart, it is the work of psychological and spiritual transformation, and when we take it up, we cannot determine ahead of time what perils we may encounter, what attachments we may have to set aside, what tasks we will be called upon to perform. We must be willing to get rid of the life we've planned so as to have the life that is waiting for us, says the mythologist Joseph Campbell. This is not just a nice inspirational sentiment. Rather, it speaks to exactly the difficulties and uncertainties inherent in this work. The life that is waiting for us is most likely not the one that we would plan for ourselves. And it will not be easy to achieve. We know this from our own experiences. If change were easy, we would all already have become the version of ourselves that we desire. But change is not easy. And even when we seek it out, we are often not prepared to embrace it. As we hear from Jung in our opening quote, one fears it and yet wants it at the same time. This is a common experience that analysts frequently encounter in their work with analysands. People come to therapy seeking change, but then seem to put a lot of energy into avoiding the need to change. The psychoanalyst and author Nancy McWilliams describes how, for the therapist, the forces in the way of change often feel greater than the forces that support it. And of course, this is not only the case in the psychoanalytic setting. It's true for any situation that pushes us to grow beyond the bounds of our current state of being, any situation in which the wholeness that we are calls us to take up a little bit more of our latent possibilities. Life does not let us remain content in whatever status quo we have achieved for very long. 
It ceaselessly presents us with new problems, new challenges, new demands. It pushes us to do more, to see more, and to be more. And much of the time, we are up to the challenge. We can meet what comes our way. But every now and then, that more that we are called to feels like more than we can bear. This may be a loss that we have to endure, right? The end of a marriage, the loss of a job, or a serious illness that has the potential to alter the course of our life. But it could also be part of life's expansion, an event or opportunity that we have longed for and dreamed of, the birth of a child, the beginning of a new career, or starting to take steps toward the realization of a creative idea. Either way, it launches us into the unknown, both in the world and in ourselves, and we recoil at that prospect because we do not and cannot know what we're going to find. As Jung states, it is fate, and that's why one fears it. In the end, one always fears oneself. I don't mean the I but fear of the other in us, the self. Fearing what we think we want can be a confusing experience. But what it points to is that there is a secret and hidden unity between the experience of loss and the experience of growth. Each contains an aspect of the other. As I said in episode 14 of this second season, Thresholds of Creativity, it is a certainty that each of us at some point will come up against our own horizons. We will find ourselves in a borderland where the old must pass away and the new must be discovered. The writer Stephen Pressfield speaks to the fear we encounter at this threshold, particularly as it pertains to our creative aspirations in his book, The War of Art. He writes, We fear discovering that we are more than we think we are, more than our parents, children, teachers think we are. We fear that we actually possess the talent that our still, small voice tells us. That we actually have the guts, the perseverance, the capacity. We fear that we truly can steer our ship, plant our flag, reach our promised land. We fear this because if it's true, then we become estranged from all we know. We pass through a membrane. We become monsters and monstrous. Jung expresses this very idea in what may be even starker terms. He writes, The development of personality, from the germ state to full consciousness, is at once a charisma and a curse because its first fruit is the conscious and unavoidable segregation of the single individual 
from the undifferentiated and unconscious herd. This means isolation, and there is no more comforting word for it. To become what one is, is to follow the promptings of a deeper instinct than that encouraged by the workaday world, which usually tends toward comfort, security, and the belief that there is safety in numbers. Put simply, it makes us different. And this is why Pressfield says that we become monsters. And it's this possibility of becoming monstrous, so to speak, of becoming estranged from all we know that tempts us to resist our fate and causes us to drown out in a thousand subtle and not-so-subtle ways the gentle murmurings of that still, small voice. This leads to what Joseph Campbell names the refusal of the call, a mythological motif within the arc of the hero's journey, which, as he writes, converts the adventure into its negative. This motif, Campbell explains, expresses the psychological experience of refusing to set aside one's egocentric concerns and of clinging to one's present system of ideals, virtues, goals, and advantages. The call comes from the self. It is the voice of God, to use mythological language, and it is a challenge to the ego to relinquish its claims to authority and centrality. The refusal of the call is the act of the ego denying the self, privileging its own will over that of God. As Campbell goes on to explain, if one is oneself, one's God, then God himself, the will of God, the power that would destroy one's egocentric system, becomes a monster. There is no way out, it seems. Either one allows oneself to become, as it were, monstrous, or it is the deeper life itself that becomes monstrous, a ghost haunting us from the shadows of what Jung calls the provisional life. And the task, according to Jung, is to learn to embrace the life that calls us, despite our fear and in full recognition of the hard road it will require us to travel. And so he says, one should really press the fear to one's heart and say, this is, after all, precisely what I want. There's a wonderful sequence in Herman Melville's Moby Dick which Jung considered to be the greatest American novel, that dramatizes this experience of coming into contact with the unknown other that is also oneself. It's the meeting of Ishmael, the story's narrator, and Queequeg, a native of the South Pacific Islands, who at first 
Ishmael finds monstrous, but for whom he quickly develops a real affection. And this section of the story takes place before the two characters sign on as crew members of the Pequod, the whaling ship captained by the unstable Ahab. It starts when Ishmael seeks out lodging for a few nights at an inn. He's told by the innkeeper that there is no unoccupied room available and that if he wants to stay, he will have to share a room and a bed with a stranger, a mysterious harpooner named Queequeg, who, he is told, is at that moment out trying to sell a shrunken head. With great reluctance, and without getting to meet his roommate-to-be ahead of time, he finally agrees, as he is exhausted and desperate to sleep. It's late and dark, and Ishmael is in bed, trying to sleep when Queequeg arrives back in the room from his activities of the night. Ishmael spies his terrible bedfellow for the first time and is horrified by his appearance. He sees a large man with a dark complexion whose face and head are covered in blackish squares, which he eventually realizes must be tattoos, which were unusual and exotic at the time. The effect is terrifying. And he goes on to describe the encounter. There was no hair on his head, none to speak of, at least, nothing but a small scalp knot twisted up on his forehead. His bald, purplish head now looked for all the world like a mildewed skull. Had not the stranger stood between me and the door, I would have bolted out of it quicker than I ever bolted a dinner. Even as it was, I thought something of slipping out of the window, but it was the second floor back. I am no coward, but what to make of this head-peddling purple rascal altogether past my comprehension. Ignorance is the parent of fear, and being completely nonplussed and confounded about the stranger, I confess I was now as much afraid of him as if it was the devil himself who had thus broken into my room in the dead of night. In fact, I was so afraid of him that I was not game enough just then to address him and demand a satisfactory answer concerning what seemed inexplicable in him. Meanwhile, he continued the business of undressing and at last showed his chest and arms as I live, these covered parts of him were checkered with the same squares as his face. His back, too, was all over the same dark squares. He seemed to have been in a thirty years' war and just escaped from it with a sticking plaster shirt. Still more, his very legs were marked, as if a parcel of dark green frogs were running up the trunks of young palms. It was now quite plain that he must be some abominable savage or other, shipped aboard a whaleman in the South Seas 
and so landed in this Christian country. I quaked to think of it. A peddler of heads, too. Perhaps the heads of his own brothers. He might take a fancy to mine. Heavens, look at that tomahawk. By taking the name Ishmael, the narrator of the story of Moby Dick indicates that he is an outcast, just like the figure of the same name from the Bible, who was sent off into the wilderness together with his mother Hagar. As such, he represents the disorientation of a soul lost in the wilderness of the industrialized world, the world in which human beings have become dissociated from nature and who treat the natural world merely as a stockpile of resources to be exploited, turned into commodities to be bought and sold. Of course, to be split off from nature is to be split off from ourselves. It is to forget that we too are nature, that we belong to a higher unified order, and that what we do to the world, we do to ourselves as well. And it's the burden of bearing this split in himself that leads Ishmael to go to sea and to sign on to a whaling ship, as if by returning to the primordial source of life itself, he might find renewed contact with life. And it is just as he is in the process of doing this that he meets Queequeg. In many ways, Queequeg is the embodiment of those very things that Ishmael is missing in himself. But his first experience of coming into contact with them is fear. And that whole scene of his first encounter with Queequeg is an echo of our opening quote from Jung when he says, It often happens that one fears what has to be, what in the deepest sense belongs to one. One fears it and yet wants it at the same time. It's not long, however, before Ishmael starts to recognize the deep humanity that resides beneath Queequeg's tattooed exterior. Observing his new companion intently from a distance, Ishmael's attitude begins to shift. And this is what he says. Savage though he was, and hideously marred about the face, at least to my taste, his countenance yet had something in it which was by no means disagreeable. You cannot hide the soul. Through all his unearthly tattooings, I thought I saw the traces of a simple, honest heart. And in his large, deep eyes, fiery black and bold, there seemed tokens of a spirit that would dare a thousand devils. As he continues to watch and to consider Queequeg, 
His admiration grows until suddenly something remarkable seems to happen. I began to be sensible of strange feelings, he says. I felt a melting in me. No more my splintered heart and maddened hand were turned against the wolfish world. This soothing savage had redeemed it. What first seemed savage and monstrous turns out to provide that which is needed for Ishmael's wholeness. This, we could say, points to the psychological experience that often that which leads to more aliveness may first seem like something that threatens our life. Because, in fact, it does. It threatens the old, narrow, provisional life. And even though that is a loss, that leads to a greater gain. Still, when it first appears on the horizon, we feel afraid. And Jung's advice for what to do at such a time as we have heard is this. One should really press the fear to one's heart and say this is, after all, precisely what I want. And indeed, this is just what happens in Moby Dick. Ishmael and Queequeg press one another to each other's heart. At one point, the two men, strangers to each other from completely different worlds, share a smoke on a pipe And this seals once and for all their connection one to the other. As Ishmael narrates, he seemed to take to me quite as naturally and unbiddenly as I to him. And when our smoke was over, he pressed his forehead against mine, clasped me around the waist, and said that henceforth, we were married, meaning in his country's phrase that we were bosom friends. And with that, Ishmael's alienation from life and from himself is healed. There's much about the process of individuation that is counterintuitive and even paradoxical. Becoming oneself by becoming a stranger to oneself, being afraid of what one wants, gaining through losing, and so on. And so we should be careful of the expectations that we bring to the practice of the symbolic life. And this is really the key takeaway here. We should not expect an easy road, nor should we imagine that we will remain untouched by the trials to be encountered along the way. But neither should we be discouraged when it seems like everything is set against us, when what we seek at first sight appears dangerous, savage, 
or monstrous. Jung writes that the development of the personality means more than just the fear of hatching forth monsters or of isolation. It also means fidelity to the law of one's own being. But let's be clear. That is not meant as an invitation to arrogance or self-aggrandizement. It is really a call to humility, to embrace what in the deepest sense belongs to one, even if at first it makes us afraid. So let me close here with a quote that I've used a few times before on this podcast, because I think it speaks to what Jung is getting at here with his phrase, fidelity to the law of one's own being. It comes from the Jungian analyst D. Stevenson Bond, and it goes like this. The mystery of the psyche is that we are haunted not by what we want, out of life, but by what life wants out of us. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening.